westerns seem to be coming back in terms of popularity in Hollywood. This year alone, we've seen The Revenant, which was the subject of the first Based on a True Story episode, as well as future movies planned for this year, such as Jane's Got a Gun and The Magnificent Seven. In a couple of weeks, on June 24th, another movie will be released that might be lumped in with the Western category, although it's more of a war movie. The movie shines a light on a man who it's probable that few knew about in a time that doesn't really see much publicity these days in Hollywood. Although it's really not about cowboys, instead it's set during the American Civil War. Free State of Jones stars Academy Award-winning actor Matthew McConaughey alongside other stars such as Gugu Mbattenraw and Carrie Russell. It tells the story of Newton Knight, a farmer in Mississippi who leads a rebellion against the Confederate Army in the heart of the South. But as with most Hollywood retellings, there's bound to be some things that aren't quite true. So before you go see the movie on the big screen, let's take a few moments to learn the real story behind Free State of Jones. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. The real Newton Knight, who's played by Matthew McConaughey in the movie, was born on November 10, 1837, to Albert and Mary Mason Knight in Mississippi. Newton's own son would say that Newton was born in 1830, while Newton's grandniece would give you another date, 1829. Newton's own gravestone, which you can find pictures of online, say that he was born on November 10, 1829. Despite this, most historians agree Newton Knight was born in 1837 because there's several census records and official documents showing that date. Still, this goes to show how few of the details are actually known about Newton, and the ones that we do know are still subject to debate. Which, if you think about it, makes sense. Newton was a farmer, didn't have much money, and he lived in rural farm country in Mississippi in the mid-1800s during a time when the country itself was tearing apart at the seams. It's likely that keeping an accurate history wasn't exactly on the top of everyone's mind. Growing up when he did, Newton was surrounded by slavery, although his father, Albert, ran the farm without any slaves, instead relying on Newton and his other siblings to help out around the farm. Newton was the fourth of seven children from Albert and Mary Mason. Since they didn't actually own any slaves, it's likely Newton himself grew up accustomed to a life without slavery. But just because Newton's parents didn't own any slaves doesn't mean slavery was a foreign concept to him. In fact, he was more than likely very familiar with slavery as his grandfather, John, was one of the largest slaveholders in Jones County, Mississippi. But like his father, when Newton started his own family, he never owned any slaves. In fact, most of the landowners in Jones County were not slave owners. This made the men of Jones County stand out a little bit in Mississippi, an overwhelmingly slave-driven state. Again, history is torn as to the reasons why. Some have speculated it's something he learned from his father. Others have said Newton was morally opposed to slavery because of his religious beliefs. Most likely, the latter is the reason, as Newton was very religious. He's what's now referred to as an old-school Baptist, or an, an original or primitive Baptist. This form of Baptist Christianity was incredibly popular during Newton's time, and it's still a faith that many follow. As a strict primitive Baptist, not only did he abstain from slavery, but he also didn't drink alcohol. 
That's something even his father couldn't keep himself from doing. So it's more likely that Newton didn't own slaves because of his own beliefs than because it was something his father did. In 1858, Newton's steel blue eyes won the affection of Serena Turner, who's played by Carrie Russell in the movie. Newton was 21 and Serena was 20 when they were married. The newlyweds set up their life together on a farm just over the county line from Jones County into Jasper County, which is about 50 miles east of Jackson, Mississippi. Two years later, in 1860, Newton and Serena welcomed their first child into the world, Thomas Jefferson Knight, as he was born on September 26, 1860. The newborn's name was a bit ironic as Thomas Jefferson was one of the founding fathers of the United States, and yet just a couple months after Thomas Jefferson Knight was born to Newton and Serena, an event occurred which would change history. On December 20, 1860, a convention in Charleston, South Carolina unanimously adopted an ordinance to dissolve all connections between South Carolina and the United States of America. This effectively made South Carolina the first state to secede from the United States. They wouldn't be the last. Twenty days after South Carolina seceded from the Union at the end of 1860, it would be Newton's home state of Mississippi who would become the second state to secede from the United States on January 9, 1861. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden, I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then, because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under Podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under Podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Ernin. On the same day, January 9th, 1861, Newton's grandfather, John, passed away. While there's no documentation that conclusively explains his death, considering he was 87 years old at the time, it's safe to say it could have been natural causes. Even though Newton and his father Albert didn't see eye to eye with John on his views of slavery, it was still a loss in the family, and no matter how much you disagree with family, losing someone you love is painful. But the pain didn't end there. After the secession, the inevitable happened when on April 12, 1861, the Confederate forces fired on Fort Sumter in South Carolina, officially starting the Civil War. News of the new war meant a divide in the United States, North and South, Union versus Confederacy. 
Newton was just 24 years old, had only been married for a few years, and with a newborn baby. Needless to say, his life was thrown into chaos. While thousands perished throughout the war, something that's never had an official tally is how the added stress of a nation at war affects marriages. Soon, Newton's and Serena's marriage would fall casualty to the stress. In 1862, Newton had another year of major changes. First, he married Rachel, a former slave, on his grandfather's farm. Now, in the movie, Rachel is played by Gugu Mbatenraa. Although, it is interesting to note that Newton wasn't the only one who wasn't a fan of slavery in Jones County. There's documented cases of Jones County residents being against the Confederacy. But despite this, there were plenty of slaves, such as those on Newton's own grandfather's farm. While there's no documentation of any sort of commotion caused by Newton's interracial marriage, it certainly wasn't a common occurrence in the Deep South during the Civil War. At first, most on both the Union and Confederate side thought that the war would only last a short time, maybe a week at most, then a month. Then after a year of bloody fighting, no one knew when it would end. As the war lasted longer than originally anticipated, it did what most wars do. It devoured more and more lives. This is where the Confederacy had a distinct disadvantage, because the southern states didn't have populations as large as those in the Union. The number of men joining the Confederacy continued to rise. However, Jones County again stood apart. Most of the men here refused to volunteer for the army, and they also refused any sort of conscription that the Confederate government tried to use to draft able-bodied men into the army. Newton was one of those who refused, but after continual pressure, he finally was forced to join the army. On May 13, 1862, Newton Knight joined the Confederate army, enlisting as a private in Company E of Mississippi's 8th Infantry Regiment. He joined with some of his friends from Jasper County, which neighbors Jones County and is where Newton's farm technically was located. They joined together so they wouldn't be separated by the army. And they refused to do anything other than help the wounded in the hospital as orderlies. They refused to actually fight. This refusal to play a bigger role did not make his superiors happy. And since Newton was one of the more outspoken of those forced into service from Jones or Jasper County, the Confederate soldiers wanted to make an example out of him. As the year wore on, the fledgling Confederate nation started to run into a problem. Those who had happily volunteered at the beginning of the war had done so for 12 months. After all, everyone assumed that the war would be over long before then. So as the war raged on, most of the volunteer time for the Confederate Army was coming to an end, and not many were re-enlisting. Understandably, they were sick of war. On September 22, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln issued a preliminary emancipation proclamation. This proclamation set the legal status of over 3 million slaves in the southern states from slave to free. At the time, almost everyone saw this proclamation as purely a political move. The Confederate States of America saw themselves as a different country and didn't see President Lincoln of the United States of America as their leader. They had their own president, Jefferson Davis. While this may be difficult to comprehend today, at the time, this mindset was no more than George Washington and the Americans who founded the United States saw King George as their leader in the American Revolution just a few generations before. 
Still, President Lincoln's proclamation was something that many slave owners in the Confederacy thought might cause a rebellion. With many of these slave owners off fighting in the war, they couldn't very well be there to defend their own homes if their slaves rebelled. The morale of the Confederate Army started to suffer as their concerns started to shift back to their homes. So three weeks after President Lincoln's preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, the Confederate Congress passed a new law in response as part of the Second Conscription Act of October 11, 1862. As part of this new law, there was a provision. That provision read, and I quote, To secure the proper police of the country, one person, either as agent, owner, or overseer on each plantation on which one white person is required to be kept by the laws or ordinances of any state, and on which there is no white male adult not liable to do military service, and in states having no such law, one person as agent, owner, or overseer on each plantation of 20 Negroes and on which there is no white male adult not liable to military service, and furthermore, for additional police for every 20 Negroes on two or more plantations within five miles of each other, and each having less than 20 Negroes, and of which there is no white male adult not liable to military duty, one person being the oldest of the owners or overseers on such plantations are hereby exempted from military service in the armies of the Confederate States. Provided further that the exemptions herein above enumerated and granted hereby shall only continue whilst the persons exempted are actually engaged in their respective pursuits or occupations. End quote. The obviously racist terminology of this law is also riddled with legalese. Essentially, any white male in the Confederate Army who had 20 or more slaves didn't have to fight in the war anymore. They could return home, theoretically, to prevent any sort of an uprising among the slaves. But this backfired. Overnight, this act made owning 20 or more slaves a ticket out of the war. It made slaves extremely valuable and, for those rich enough to own 20 or more slaves, quite possibly a means to save their own lives. One of Newton Knight's friends, Private Jasper Collins, who had joined the Confederate Army with Newton, was furious. His anger mirrored the sentiment of many Confederate soldiers at the time. All of a sudden, this was a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. Already not in the mood to serve, this was the last straw. Private Collins deserted the Confederate Army, setting a precedent for Newton and those that had joined with him left in the Army. Just a few weeks later, word reached Newton that the Confederate Army had seized all of the horses on his farm. That was his last straw. On November 6, 1862, Newton Knight went absent without leave, or AWOL, and deserted the Confederate Army near Abbeville, Mississippi, about 200 miles from his home. It wasn't an easy trip back to Jones County as the Confederate Army had scouts looking out for any sort of deserters. When Newton reached his farm, he was in shock. The farm was a disaster. Like many of the surrounding farms, it was run down and most of the crops were either dead or dying due to lack of people working the fields. Another law the Confederate Congress had passed was taking its toll. It was referred to as the tax-in-kind system and essentially meant that the Confederate armies could take whatever they wanted for the soldiers as sort of a tax. 
This meant hungry soldiers would ravish farms and take meat from smokehouses, horses, chickens, crops, and even clothing. One of the colonels in the Confederate Army, William Brown, would later report that the Confederacy's own tax officials had, quote, done more to demoralize Jones County than the whole Yankee Army, end quote. How could soldiers who were already sick of war be expected to fight when their wives and children back home were starving? But war wasn't so easily stopped, and so it raged on. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers were being killed on both sides, but the Confederacy didn't have the same sort of numbers as the Union, and the war slowly started to shift. In May of 1863, Newton's battalion was ordered about 150 miles to the west of Jones County to Vicksburg, Mississippi, to help defend a Confederate stronghold along the Mississippi River there. Newton refused to go, and so he was imprisoned, and according to many accounts, he was tortured while his possessions at home were destroyed. An already poor farmer, Newton lost the few things that he owned. Things weren't going so well for those who had gone to Vicksburg. Union Major General Ulysses S. Grant decided to lay siege to the stronghold starting on May 25, 1863. For six weeks, the Confederate soldiers at Vicksburg held out. And then it all came crashing down for the Confederacy. As the heat of the summer months began to oppress the soldiers at Vicksburg, over a thousand miles to the north in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, a new battle was beginning that would, along with Vicksburg, be seen as the turning point in the war. The Battle of Gettysburg was from July 1st to 3rd in 1863. It was also the bloodiest battle of the war, which saw 51,000 people die in a span of three days. 28,000 Confederate soldiers perished to 23,000 Union soldiers. The day after the Union won the Battle of Gettysburg by forcing the remaining Confederate soldiers from the field, the Confederate soldiers at Vicksburg surrendered. News certainly hadn't traveled that fast at the time, so it's most likely that the surrender at Vicksburg was more due to the six-week siege that General Grant's army had held on the stronghold. Regardless, these two events happening in such quick succession was the beginning of the end for the Confederacy. When the Union Army took control of the Confederate stronghold at Vicksburg, they also gained control over the Mississippi River. This would permanently isolate the western states of the Confederacy. A Confederate nation already ravaged by their own internal issues with things such as the tax-and-kind system now wouldn't be able to send supplies across the Mississippi. They were, in effect, split in two. A lot of the soldiers from the Jones County Battalion returned home deserting the army after the defeat at Vicksburg. There's accounts of some of the horrors that happened, but perhaps none could be more telling than the story of an unknown soldier who returned to his home in Jones County after the defeat at Vicksburg, and when he arrived, he found that his wife had died of starvation. And it was a fate that she chose by giving the last of the meager food that they had to their children. It had to be extremely demoralizing to hear of such tragedies, not only in the war, but also at home. Already short of manpower, the Confederacy couldn't afford to lose any more soldiers to desertion. Already short of manpower, the Confederacy couldn't afford to lose any more soldiers to desertion. Like Newton, his superior officer, Major Amos McLemore, was opposed to the Confederacy at the onset of the war. 
However, Macklemore's view of the Union was very similar to many other at the time. He saw the Union as invaders, and although he was opposed to secession, when the war seemed inevitable, he joined the Confederate Army and raised a company of men from Smith, Jones, Jasper, and Simpson counties in Mississippi. Major Macklemore himself was from Jones County, so in August of 1863, Major Amos Macklemore of the 27th Mississippi Regiment was tasked with rounding up many of the deserters in his home county. That mission was short-lived when a couple of months later, on October 5, 1863, Major Macklemore was murdered by the deserters that he was trying to round up. While there's not very good documentation to support the facts in this case, most historians believe that it was Newton Knight himself who pulled the trigger to end Macklemore's life, shooting him in the back as he prepared to go to bed. Whether or not Newton killed Macklemore, we do know it was after this event that Newton organized the company of men that would make him famous. Many of the men who had been to war had certainly changed in the way that only war can change you. There's no historical proof, but if you think about what you might do in a similar situation, you can think that there weren't many options. Major Macklemore had been ordered to round up deserters, and now he was dead. Whether or not Newton pulled the trigger himself, it was certainly a deserter who did it. There would be a replacement for Macklemore to round up the deserters, and probably retaliation for his death. The other alternative was to return to the war. That's something they didn't want to do in the first place, and since the Confederate defeats at Vicksburg and Gettysburg, they had to have seen that the Confederacy was crumbling. Why put your life on the line for a nation you didn't want to support in the first place? Instead, Newton decided to put his life on the line to defend something that he did want to support, his home. Just to set some context, if Knight and his men had a base of operations, it would have been around the small town of Ellisville, Mississippi, which at the time was the largest city in Jones County. Ellisville, whose surrounding areas are still home to many of the relatives from Knight and his men, is nestled along what's now I-59 in the southeastern tip of Mississippi. It's about 40 miles west of the Mississippi-Alabama border. And it was in the rural swamps around Ellisville that Newton organized a company of about 125 men from Jones and the surrounding counties of Jasper, Covington, and Smith. They were all fed up with the Confederacy. Newton and his men primarily raided smaller groups of Confederate soldiers. They sabotaged supplies and mostly caused an annoyance to the Confederate army. Their methods were very much in line with guerrilla tactics used in the military today, although they almost certainly were not as organized. After all, Newton and his men were a collection of farmers, and although they had spent some time in the military, they hadn't really seen much combat. Still, they managed to stay hidden and avoid capture, thanks to help from many of their friends in the area. In particular, Newton's wife, Rachel, was a big help. Being a former slave, she was often able to hide in plain sight, as many Confederate sympathizers outside the area didn't expect her to be Newton's wife. She helped Newton by offering him a steady supply of both food and vital information that helped Newton avoid capture. Anytime Newton and his men came close to getting captured, they'd use their knowledge of the local landscape to go into the swamps. They simply disappeared, making capture something that eluded them for a long time. By the time 1864 rolled around, word had begun to spread of Newton Knight and his company of, quote, Southern Yankees, end quote, who were in open rebellion to the Confederacy. The Union Army, after their victory at Vicksburg, continued to make their way through Mississippi. 
This path of destruction was led by Union General William Sherman and is now referred to as the Meridian Campaign because it was a path from Vicksburg, Mississippi, due east for about 130 miles to Meridian, Mississippi. Meridian, for context, is about 65 miles north of Ellisville in Jones County, where Newton and his men were. This was just before Sherman's infamous March to the Sea, or the Savannah Campaign, at the end of 1864. Now, during the Meridian Campaign, General Sherman laid waste to anyone who crossed his path as he pushed General Polk of the Confederacy out of Mississippi. He led about 27,000 men, and while there were about 170 Union soldiers that perished in the campaign, there's no documentation of how many Confederate soldiers were lost. During this campaign, there was no battle. The fighting didn't take place on some distant battlefield. It took place on the property and homes of Confederate sympathizers. We know from history that General Sherman captured or burned just about all of the food and supplies from civilians during his infamous march to the sea, so there's no telling what sort of devastation he laid to those in Mississippi during the Meridian Campaign. And since the people of Mississippi were already dying of starvation, there's no way to know how many men, women, and children perished either by the hand of General Sherman's men or as a side effect of their destruction. We don't have a lot of the documentation because... As they say, history is written by the winners. Such is the devastation of war. No doubt Newton and his men had heard of the massive losses left in the wake of General Sherman's march from Vicksburg to Meridian. So it makes sense that Newton would reach out to General Sherman in an attempt to make sure that this death and destruction didn't affect the home that he was trying to protect from the Confederates. During the Meridian Campaign, General Sherman claimed to receive a dispatch from Newton. It happened in February of 1864, and while there's no surviving documentation to back up his words, General Sherman did write that he received, quote, a declaration of independence, end quote, from the men of Jones County. This was backed up a few months later when the paper in nearby Natchez, Mississippi, the Natchez Courier, reported on July 12, 1864, that Jones County had officially seceded from the Confederacy. There's no official documentation of any secession, but it's not likely that even if they did send official documentation somewhere that it would have survived the war. Perhaps when Newton sent his letter to General Sherman, that was the official documentation. Perhaps he sent it elsewhere in an attempt to make it more official, and it never arrived. There's no way to know. Then again, the very act of a rebellion is, by its very nature, illegal. After all, the Confederacy itself had seceded from the United States of America, but at no time during the Civil War did the United States government ever recognize the Confederacy as a separate country. Much like the United States itself wasn't recognized by the government from which it seceded, the British government, until the end of the Revolutionary War in 1783. Whether or not Newton ever sent official documentation of secession, after electing Newton as their captain, a rank he never really earned in the Confederate Army, the Knight Company, as they were becoming known in the area, managed to make a statement that certainly would capture the attention of the Confederacy. It all centered around a Union flag, a flag of the United States of America, which was raised over the courthouse in Ellisville as a blatant act of defiance against the Confederacy. 
In March of 1864, after General Polk informed the Confederacy's president, Jefferson Davis, that the Knight Company in Jones County was causing a major blow as they were seizing precious Confederate supplies that were desperately needed across the entire southeastern area of Mississippi. As General Sherman's troops were continuing to make their way east towards Georgia, the Confederacy wanted to crush the rebellion in Jones County once and for all. To do this, they sent Colonel Robert Lowry, who would become the governor of Mississippi after the war. Colonel Lowry was from nearby Smith County, so he was familiar with the swamps of Mississippi in that area. While we don't know exactly how many men were at Lowry's command to hunt down Newton, what we do know is that Lowry's 6th Mississippi Regiment suffered significant losses at the Battle of Shiloh in 1862, a few years before. So we know that Colonel Lowry, who himself was badly injured at the Battle of Shiloh, and his men were both battle-hardened. And they used a rather brutal tactic to flush out Knight's company. In April of 1864, Lowry's men brought bloodhounds into the swamps. Many of Newton's men were mauled by the dogs, and we know of at least 10 who were captured and hanged by Colonel Lowry. They were left hanging in the swamps as a message to the rest of Knight's company. While Knight's company wasn't mentioned in a proclamation by General Polk on May 1st, 1864, they certainly had to have been on his mind. The proclamation was an official pardon for all soldiers who had deserted the army. Knowing that General Polk had just sent Colonel Lowry to flush out Newton and his men, who were all deserters from the Confederate army, it had to have been part of his plan. But this was also almost certainly an attempt to help add manpower to the Confederate Army, which was suffering crippling losses at the hands of the Union Army, which just had a lot more men to begin with. Shortly after Polk's proclamation, one of the newspapers in the Confederacy printed an article about Newton Knight's men. The article was published on May 10, 1864, by the Memphis Daily Appeal. Now, Memphis, Tennessee was a part of the Confederacy at the time, so the story is told from the perspective of Newton's men as it's from the angle of the Confederacy. But it offers quite an interesting look at the events which unfolded. This is the article in its entirety, titled, Outlawry Crushed in Mississippi, and I quote, a correspondent of the Mobile Register, writing from Waynesboro, Mississippi, gives information of the military proceeding in Mississippi, from which we learn that the organization against the Confederate government in the disaffected districts of that state have been completely broken up. He says, I see that under Mississippi items, you say that Captain Newton Knight of Jones had sent in a flag of truce to Colonel Lewis. This is not so. I am just from Jones County. The expedition consisted of the 5th and 20th Mississippi Regiments and my cavalry company, the whole under command of Colonel Lowry of the 6th Mississippi Regiment. We entered Smith County on the 27th of March, and on the 28th hung two noted deserters and leaders of squads, McNeil and Rain. These were all the men who hung in Smith. There was a Union flag, or rather a ludicrous representation of the United States flag, captured at the home of one Hawkins of Smith County. It was concealed on the person of Mrs. Hawkins, who would not deliver it until after much persuasion and a few threats. The history of the flag is as follows. After General Polk's army had retired from the state and the enemy were at Meridian, 
it was thought that the state had gone up and that our forces would not occupy it again, at least not so soon. So Old Hawkins called a meeting of citizens of his part of the country and of the deserters who had struggled during the retreat of our forces. He then made a speech to the assembly and urged them to stay at their homes and work, that they would not be molested, and told them that as the mill where he lived was all the property he had, that he made a Union flag to fly on it, to protect it from the destruction by the Yankees, as the rumor was that they were burning all of the mills. The worst feature was that several good citizens were compelled by the deserters to attend the meeting. Old Hawkins is in custody and will remain so until his case can be properly disposed of. While in Smith, several hundred deserters were arrested and sent forward. On the night of the 12th of April, a party of infantry under a lieutenant out on a scout were being rested on a piazza of Mr. D. McLeod's house in Covington County. After dark, a shotgun was discharged in their midst, killing a sergeant and wounding a lieutenant and a corporal. The perpetrator of the act was soon discovered, and on the 15th we moved into Jones. That way, the man who fired into the party on the piazza was arrested after being wounded and run down by dogs and was promptly executed. His name was D. Redock. A young man by the name of Greg was with him, and he was shot while running and soon died from the wound. The same day, another party of our boys were ambushed near Newton Knight's home by deserters, only wounding one man, not seriously, however. Our boys promptly charged the ambush and captured two, Ben Knight and a lad, Silliman Coleman, and shooting one other. Knight and Coleman were both promptly executed. The same day, four others were caught and brought in. They were put before a court-martial and on their own confession of resisting with arms, military arrests were, on the morning of the 16th, executed by hanging. Many men, said to belong to Knight's company, have reported. We pursued a vigorous policy, but the condition of the community required it. Terror was struck among them, and they came flocking in, asking for mercy. Just about this time, General Polk's proclamation of pardon reached us. We relaxed not, however, the rigor of our campaign, and with the proclamation of our activity, we have succeeded in getting all but five of the deserters of Jones County. Newton Knight, it is thought, will report if he can be found, and see the proclamation by his friends and relatives who are hunting him. Sim Collins and boys have reported, Hotsfield, who was said to have commanded a battalion and all of his influence have reported. There never has existed any organization of men in Jones. The deserters, who were very prominent in their neighborhoods, led their squads not consisting generally of more than six or seven men. Jones is no worse than her surroundings. The people are very poor and very ignorant, and the enemy traversing the state without opposition induced to believe the country had gone up. So, by the advice of some older citizens, they were induced to believe that they were the strong party, so they could defy the government and stay at home. We have changed the status of things in Jones, Perry, and Smith counties, and expect to reestablish in all of South Mississippi a healthy loyalty to the powers that be. If you see proper to extract from above, you can do so. Okay, so that's the end of the article. Now, it's worth noting that 
the Ben Knight mentioned in the article is most likely Newton's brother, James W. Benjamin Knight. Although there's conflicting documentation that Ben Knight was actually killed in August of 1865 during the Battle of Atlanta. Still, the article really helps give us insights into how many of Knight's company came to be captured. You'll notice, though, that the article mentions, quote, we have succeeded in getting all but five of the deserters of Jones County, end quote. As it mentions, Newton Knight was one of those five. Newton and his core group were not captured by Colonel Lowry. Instead, they once again disappeared into the swamps. Although he tried to find them, Newton's men stayed hidden, thanks in no small part to a continual effort of many locals. And as she had before, Rachel was one of the keys to aiding Newton with food and information. But with so few men left in the rebellion, Colonel Lowry soon called off the search for Newton and reported that the mission was a success. He left Mississippi to return to the front lines of the war. As soon as he left, Newton and the few still with him reemerged from the swamps and continued to cause destruction against the Confederacy, burning several key bridges and destroying railroads used by the Confederate Army. On January 10, 1865, Newton and his men fought their final skirmish with the Confederacy at a place called Sal's Battery, named after Newton's shotgun, affectionately nicknamed Sal. Sal's Battery is just outside of Ellisville, Mississippi. Newton's men were successful in fighting off Confederate cavalry and infantry, surviving yet another close call. Three months later, on April 9, 1865, the leader of the Confederate Army, General Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Ulysses S. Grant at the Apotomax Courthouse in Virginia. As the news spread of General Lee's surrender, the rest of the Confederacy fell apart in the following months. The final Confederate troops to surrender were under Stan Wati, who was both the Cherokee Nation's leader and a brigadier general in the Confederate Army. They surrendered on June 23, 1865. Newton survived the war and settled back onto the farm with Rachel. The couple welcomed Martha into the world on August 15, 1866, not to be confused with Martha Ann Elizabeth, who was Newton's daughter from his first wife, Serena. Newton and Rachel had a son, John Stewart, on May 10, 1868. Then tragedy struck when Newton's mother, Mary Mason, passed away in 1868 at the age of 63. Newton and Rachel had three more children, two boys and one girl, until Rachel passed away on February 11, 1889. She was only 48 when she passed, and she had been married to Newton for 27 of those years. This wasn't the only tragedy that Newton would endure. On January 13, 1917, Newton's daughter, Martha Ann Elizabeth, passed away at only 53 years old, followed by his son, John Seward, passing away on December 6th, 1920. After such a life of hardship and fighting for what he believed in, Newton Knight finally found peace when he was laid to rest on February 16th, 1922 at the age of 84. Today, you can find Newton alongside those he loved, including Martha Ann Elizabeth, John Stewart, and his beloved wife, Rachel. They are buried at the Newton Knight Cemetery in Jasper County, Mississippi. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. 
You may have noticed that we've changed it up a little bit on this episode. Up until now on this show, we've looked at movies that have already come out, some classics. So this week, I wanted to try something different by looking ahead at the story of a movie that has yet to be released. That way, you'll know the real story when you go see the movie for the first time. If you like this future-looking format, let me know. Maybe we'll do it again. If you want to learn more about the life of Newton Knight, I'd recommend the book called The State of Jones, the small southern county that seceded from the Confederacy. But as you might have guessed, a lot of the facts surrounding Newton Knight's life are debated among historians. It's very possible that we'll never know the entire story. There's too many conflicting documents and reports. So it only makes sense that a lot of what will be shown in the movie Free State of Jones is either made up or simply decided upon. For example, do you go with 1837 as Newton Knight's year of birth? Or do you listen to his relatives and say 1830 or 1829? No matter what decision you make, you might be wrong. And very much of that is true for the facts of this episode as well. I did countless hours of research to find and verify the most accurate account that I could. But if you have any more information that can shed light on the life of Newton Knight, feel free to let me know. You can contact me through the Based on a True Story website at basedonatruestorypodcast.com, or you can find me on Twitter at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And as with all episodes, the transcript for this episode will be available on Amazon soon. Your purchase of the transcript will help support the show, so I thank you in advance for all of your support. <laughs>